is the inevitable. Before we get started, I'm bringing back the quid pro quo written review for editing and coaching. If you leave a written review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I will edit and coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words or a, or a pitch letter or something, anything. Just don't exceed 2,000 words. I can only do so much. When your review publishes, send a screenshot to creative nonfiction podcast at gmail.com and we'll start a dialogue. It's like a $100 value. So if I were you, I would totally do it. And someone from Spain is taking me up on the offer. Very nice. Also, here's my uh, requisite shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. If you visit athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount. I don't get any money. Merely celebrating this great product is why I'm giving it a shout out. I love it. It's nice. Skip the hangover, man. Skip that shit. It's also the Atavistian time of the month, so there will be some spoilers. So consider visiting magazine.atavist.com to read the story and subscribe. I don't get any kickbacks or anything like that if you subscribe as a result of maybe me turning you on to them. But if you choose to subscribe as a result of this podcast or others uh, of the several dozen Atavistian-themed ones, uh, just email me at creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com to let me know. Or, uh, or uh, go to at creativenonfictionpodcast on Instagram or threads and let me know. It would just be cool. It'd be nice to know that uh, this is a funnel for the amazing work that Sayward Darby and Jonah Ogles are doing over there. Okay. What you're always balancing throughout is this is not we're we're crafting and and not making things up or anything, but a lot of the techniques of fiction, right? To it's yeah. narrative nonfiction, it's crafted, but yet yeah, these are real people in real lives, and it's their story as well. All right. How's it going, CNF? It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast. The show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara, but then again, you knew that. This week, we have Katya Sengal on the show for her atavist piece titled The Truth is Out There. A Father's Disappearance, Dark Family Secrets, and The Hunt for Bigfoot. Yeah, it all connects, man. It all connects. This story is about... The Searching for Elusive Truths, as Katya writes. She is a freelance writer and author based in California. But we'll give her a more thorough intro just before we actually hear from her. You know you, you, you know the drill with this. Uh, today, hey, it's uh, Friday, December 1st, depending on when you listen to this. But that's when this podcast is published. CNF Fridays. One more month left in 2023. What a year, man. It being the first of the month... Newsletter dropped today. Juicy essay this month. You won't want to miss it. You know the deal. Head to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for this monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's good stuff. Subscribe to the podcast or not. It's up to you. Subscribe to the newsletter or don't. Totally up to you. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. In this episode, you'll hear about untidy endings, forging trust, and how pieces of this nature can at times feel exploitative. Journalism as a whole can often feel exploitative. It's something I've wrestled with all the time. When we hear from Jonah Ogles on this piece, he'll talk about what gets pitches over the top and why you shouldn't fear pitching the same place repeatedly. Speaking from experience, I know that if I get a rejection, I'm less likely to keep repitching them because I'm just projecting, but it just feels like you're I, like I'm annoying them. Like, oh my god, here's Brendan again. Ugh. But that's never the case. They're getting so many pitches they will barely remember you. Or if they do, they'll be like, oh, okay, maybe this is the one. Uh, Cliff Notes Virgin, you're not bugging them. All right, so right before, right before we get to Jonah, I want to give a shout out to Adam. Uh, I'm sorry if I pronounce your last name wrong. Uh, Adam uh, Sowards, or Sowards, and Lauren McKinney, new patrons over at patreon.com slash cnfpod. Uh, Mira from 
from Spain, who is taking me up on the written review offer for editing, had this to say about the podcast. I like to, anytime you give a written written review of the show, I love to read the review and give you a shout out. So here it is. That extra push you need. The best ever podcast for writers, at least for me. I always listen to it when I am stuck in the procrastination mode, and it always motivates me to sit down and start writing. The day I listen to Brendan and his guests, I get some work done. Plus, I discover amazing writers who I can learn from or get encouraged by. Thank you, Brendan. You got it. Thank you, Mira. And with that, now let's turn it loose and hear some brilliant insights from Jonah Ogles. got this piece with uh with katya here and and wouldn't you know there's another there's something of a shipwreck involved (laughs) yeah there is a shipwreck i I, just as you started that sentence i was like oh god we're gonna talk about ships again (laughs) i don't i don't have anything else to say about ships at this point yeah it's it's great and uh katya and i had a really good conversation about about it the other day and uh what we what we got to talking about eventually was how this interwove interwove like a cryptozoology and this mystery to find the this this missing person uh, and uh, and just how those two threads are just so so thematically congruent and perfect and I think really blew this piece up and and really cracked the code of it. Yeah, yeah, it, it's something extra you know to 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 bring to a story it's it's not just this one it's not sort of like plot a is the whole thing you know like there's there's this whole other part of it that you're right does speak to it and really speak to like the the shipwreck missing dad uh part of the story in really interesting ways and that's but that's a hard thing to do in in the writing you know to like it's one thing to sort of like talk about it you know to like a friend at a bar or something you could be like oh yeah i can kind of see how that would work but then to actually like do it on the page i think is a tough thing to do but katya i think really pulled it off and in a really artful way kind of a quiet way just sort of let those two those two threads like intertwine themselves almost in the background you know it's mm-hmm. it's a sort of thing that i'm not even sure like i could instruct a writer how to do it it's just sort of like keep keep trying like you're almost there <laughs> like keep keep moving on it with every piece is there always almost unilaterally a moment of where you have to talk the writer off off the ledge at some point or another. <laughs> yeah, it happens. All, not <laughs> in every story, but it's 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 pretty common. You know, like part a big part of the job is like being a a pseudo therapist and just sort of like, yep, you're on the right track. Like, don't give up. You're you're right. <laughs> a lot of it's. I mean, we talked about following your gut last time we talked, and. I feel like that's a lot of what I do for writers is, is just sort of affirm like, yeah, you're right that, you know, that it, that will work and maybe here's how it could work or you're right. That's not working here. are The weaknesses I see with it, but it, it, it's sort of just like giving the writer like a, a wall to bounce things off of. And when I was speaking with Katya, she was uh, she was especially happy to finally landed a piece with the Atavis. She's pitched several times, uh-huh. and uh, we didn't. Uh, it was this was actually off mic with her, and I was like, "Oh, that could have been something." Uh, you know, it just didn't come up in our conversation. But that's always something I like to unpack a little bit because I think there is a tendency for a lot of people who they they might pitch and they get rejected, and then they're like, "I." I, I don't want to pitch again uh, just because I don't feel like maybe annoying the editor with like mm-hmm. another pitch, another idea and everything. And I think um, I, I, that's probably bad, bad practice and insecurity on the pitcher's part. Maybe, so maybe you can speak to it. It's okay. As long as you're writing, you know, decent pitches, even though they might be rejected, it's like, well, you know what? You're like, keep, keep trying. You're not, you're not really annoying us. 
Yeah, right, right. Uh, and and that was, I mean, in no way was Katya annoying us by, by pitching us ideas in the past. Right. And she she's one of those writers, you know, there are some writers who pitch you a lot of ideas and you you know they're close or you know they're a good writer and you want to work with them and like you know you see their name and you're like oh god please let this one be be right for us and and that's that's the case with Katya because she's a great writer and and we wanted we wanted to get ideas from her and we try to encourage people you know especially those who are sending in good pitches that are close we we try to always say in the rejection like please keep sending us ideas you know we want to we want to work on you with something and there have been writers who have been sending me ideas for years that we haven't quite landed on the right one but that I really want to work with and even the writers who send in ideas that are pretty far off I'm never annoyed. I'm I'm never annoyed by receiving pitches from writers, even if they're way off base. Like I, I don't have a problem saying like, this isn't right for us for these reasons. Sorry. Good luck finding a home for it. I think writers who send in a lot of pitches in some ways, I even feel like more, I feel like a greater pressure to try to help them refine the pitches they're sending to us, either that particular pitch, um, which I always try to give like some feedback on why an idea wasn't right for us, but even on pitching generally, you know, like we'll get writers who send us very brief pitches. And after like two or three of them, I'll say, Hey, look, these are never going to get through, you know, like, unless, unless you, unless you expand them, like, and here's kind of what we're looking for. And here's what a good pitch looks like. So yeah, writers shouldn't feel, if they're getting a response from an editor, I, I think it's fine to keep pitching them, even good to to try to build that relationship. And when a, when a pitch is just falling short, say it's like 80% there, what is usually wrong in the 20%? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it varies from pitch to pitch or maybe i should do like a full review of all <laughs> all pitches that i've rejected and see if Case there's study. like a yeah a common a common thing that i could just correct for writers and help them up their odds but you know some sometimes it's that i mean a lot of times it's a we can't see the ending clearly that's a really common one where we're like yes you have a great first act we see all the action in the second act but we just have no idea how the story is going to end. And it and it's hard for any editor to assign a piece like that. But especially for us, when we only get to publish 12, you know, I, I, yeah. if we just assigned every story that had a good first two acts, we'd be backed up for like the next six years with stories. So that's a really common one. Some Sometimes it's that the source material just isn't quite there you know that they i feel like a lot of the historical ones we get it's like you know i have this great story and hear all these things and i think there are a bunch of papers at this library that would also Mm. help illuminate the piece and i'll be like that's great to know go look at them and come back (laughs) yeah you know because because you just can't um the yeah which i guess is kind of the same thing i was talking about earlier like we just can't see the full piece yet and editors really like to be able to imagine it from start to finish. It's almost like, and I have no background in law. I don't know how lawyers operate, but I do understand that when you're, when lawyers are in a courtroom, they're, they're not asking questions they don't really know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And, and so you're, you're building a case. And so it's like, you need to, you need to be positive. There can't be any mystery as to how it ends. You need to really, you don't need to have done all the work, but you really do have to have hammered home basically the tent pole of each act to be like, yeah, this is, this is where we're taking off and this is how we land. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a great analogy. Cause it, cause it is, you need to have like the evidence to support what is going to happen in the story. Yeah. And, and it, that's an interesting point to make about, 
when talking about Katya's story in particular, because there's, it's not a traditional ending to her story, you know, like it's not tidy. It's, it's not like all these questions that you've had as you've been reading this. Well, guess what? Here's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just more open-ended than that. And it's, her story is more about almost a feeling than it is plot points, you know, like the, the shipwreck happens and, and the dad goes missing. And then after that, like there, there are little things that are revealed but it, but there's sort of what draws you through is an emotional resonance rather rather than like a plot slowly revealing some something to you, or or what it reveals. Maybe a better way to put it is what it reveals only clouds things up more. You know, which is a, it's a tough story to tell a a cool way of of telling a story. I think. In the absence of a tidy ending, which does a lot of the heavy lifting uh, for the, the the pacing and even the writing of a story, you know, what do you want to see in place when it is cloudy a- at the end and it doesn't it doesn't wrap up in that nice little bow? Yeah, Sayward and I talk a lot about wanting and en- our endings to feel like readers have landed on on some solid ground and and we almost always follow that up by saying like we're not saying every question has to be answered but there should be some something sort of pulling at the reader throughout the piece and the ending needs to speak to that and make them feel like there's not even like a finality to it but it but but like their understanding of it has changed in some significant way. And so in a piece like that, that's what you're aiming for. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, we found the dad, here he is. This is, mm-hmm. um, yeah. this is, this is what happened. It, it's, it's more about, okay, here's the process. These kids have gone through throughout their lives. And, and here, here is sort of like, the peace they've made with it or the ways in which they haven't made peace with it yet. It's almost like a feel thing, you know, like you just, you're just looking for an ending that kind of feels right. And you, you sort of like cast about and try different things, you know, like the, the ending on this one, if I remember right, we tried a few different endings and we ended up and my memory's kind of hazy because it, it was a longer it took us a while to edit this piece, but I think it, what we ended up doing was we ended up ending the story sooner than we anticipated. Like, I think she had a different section towards the end that we ended up just cutting uh, because we were like, it, this, if we end it here, this actually kind of feels a little bit better. But that that's a situation where you're sort of like, how does the writer feel about it? How do I feel about it? How does Sayward feel about it? You know, it's it's sort of like work by committee. Does everyone feel good about this? Mm. Yeah, and it, it is a wonderful piece. And, and and you just brought up that it was you know, a, something of a challenging edit. So in, in what ways did the, was did, what challenges did this one present to you in particular? Well, because the because there isn't an obvious it's not like a criminal on the run where all you have to Mm -hmm. do is follow them from the time they set off you know it's it's it is more nebulous and so you're trying to find the ways in which the pieces will fit together because they're not you know it, it could change the story can change drastically based on when you drop in some cryptozoology stuff you know like yeah where where bigfoot appears you want it to sort of speak to what came before and after it. And in the absence of like a clearly defined plot, you're, you're sort of doing that by feel and kind of trial by trial and error. I mean, mostly what I meant by it, it was a long editing process was it just kind of took us a while to actually like get to the story. And there was a lot of trial and error on like, let's move this here. Let's try this and, and see, see how the pieces all fit together. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people who listen to the show and are practicing writers, narrative journalists, like they intuitively know that the editing process can be a little messy. Like we're gonna let's let's try on this pair of shoes. Ah, it's a half size too small. So let's go to the, go. Let's try on this size. Uh, take that for a walk. See how that feels. And uh, it's it's just great to hear you hear you talk about that and that it's not like an indictment or a, a criticism on the part of the reporter or the writer. It's just like okay, you know what? This just doesn't. The fit isn't quite right. These laces are too tight. It's not yeah. wide enough. And it's like I'm using a going back to my days as a as a fitter of running shoes at Fleet Feet <laughs> in Albany, New York. And uh, but it it is that idea. There's a lot of that trial and error. And then through no fault of anyone's own, it's like okay, now we can. Th- this seems to be in better service for the for this story. And it's not because you're not skilled. It's just like this one is asking these questions, and we we need to just do what's best for the story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's fairly obvious, you know, like if, if Sayward and I both read a draft and, and we say, and we have the same question, you know, early in the piece, but the answer to that question is only revealed later in the draft and much later, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, we just need to move that up, you know, and it, and it, and it kind of makes sense to everybody. Um, But there are, there there's no one perfect way of telling any story, you know? And so when you're, when you're a writer working with an editor or an editor working with a writer, you're, you're just trying to, you're just trying stuff, you know? And and it needs to make sense to those two people. And then usually a top editor at any publication, you know? So you've, you've got to kind of clear it with three people and you're relying on, trust that that all three of those people are good readers that they're smart that they have a good sense of how things should work and no one is seeing like a major issue with the structure of the piece or the way that it's all coming together and and that's i'm sure that sometimes sometimes frustrating for me you know if a writer if a writer has a very different opinion i'm sure it's sometimes frustrating for for (laughs) writers too but you you got to do your best and i'm not speaking to Katya's the experience with Katya at all because it was wonderful and kind of a flawless editing experience Mm -hmm. um but sometimes it's tough I feel like one of the when things do get a little contentious with writers one of the most common emails I send is look we've just got to trust each other you know like no nobody's trying to ruin any story here we have Mm -hmm. a difference of opinion but we've got to we've got to trust you know, I need you to trust me that when I say this needs to happen earlier, it really does. And we can, we can find a way to, to, you know, smooth out transitions and, and work through it, but, but something isn't working and we got to try to fix it. Oh, I love it. I, I, I love hearing the, you know, the, the dialogue that you have from your side of the table as always. And this one, uh, the ending is untidy, but I think it's the, it really is the 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 perfect ending, and uh, Katya and I spoke about that too. I think it just comes together so well with those various threads of uh, you know trying to seek out these elusive truths that you can never quite get your hands on. So it's a uh, yeah, just a outstanding piece. And as always, Jonah, just great get, getting your side of the table on these things. Yeah, thank thanks for having me. It's always a, a pleasure to talk about, and I I agree one hundred percent. It's a really nice story. Um, and, and I hope I hope people really enjoy it and, and have a good time reading it. All right, that was a great start, right? So next up is Katya. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Marie Claire, the Wall Street Journal. She's at Casey Sengel on Twitter, and that's C-E-N-G-E-L on X, I guess, and uh, Instagram. Her newsletter is Sometimes Gonzo. She's been awarded grants from the International Reporting Project, the International Women's Media Foundation, and the Interview Center for Journalists. Gosh, we get it already. Ugh, you're good. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. You're going to dig this CNF. Well, you know, and one final, one final thing. Katya mentions working with uh, Sayward Darby on this piece a bit, which Katya did. And then Sayward went on sabbatical, how dare she, and handed the reins over to Jonah. So you'll hear reference to to the Darby-in-Chief herself, okay? 
All right, we're starting right here with how Katya arrived at this particular story. Magazine.atavis.com. Get to it. You know, and I was trying to remember that before this conversation because it was one of those that had been years in the making just because there was idea and then that. And I think it was first came through in either a Google alert on Bakersfield or just from the California Sun newsletter had a story about Bakersfield. And I've just always been fascinated by Bakersfield, California. I live on the coast and the interior of California just doesn't get as much, you know, most of the stories you read are out of San Francisco or LA. And so I'm always looking for stories out of a different area. Um, And there's so many people there and so much going on there, but we just don't hear those stories as much. Um, So I was instantly intrigued when I heard that part. And then there was this connection. So I heard just about Brian, who's one of the adult children in the story, telling about uh, he was a reporter himself who at the 50 year anniversary of his father's disappearance on a uh, on this boating trip decided to kind of revisit it. Um, and so that just intrigued me. And especially because so Brian's dad um, was from Bakersfield and Brian had been growing up in Bakersfield. Uh, but the boat trip was in the central coast, Morro Bay. And so I'm near that central coast area. So again, that connection between those two uh, areas had caught my attention. And so I just started, uh, reached out to Brian to see if there's something more there. And him being a journalist, it made it a little easier to reach out and kind of understood what I was going after. But I still didn't know what the story was, if there was something more there. And then talking to him, he started talking about other family members. And so I started reaching out to the other family members. And then I knew there was something there, but I still didn't really know what. And that's when I had started talking with the atavist and she helped me figure out, okay, yeah, this is interesting, but there's not a story. Um, and so it was through some conversations with her and emails um, that we started figuring out what the actual story was. Yeah, the the whole concept of figuring out if something is there, I think a lot of people, and myself included, have some that you, you feel like you have something on the surface that is meaty and juicy, but like you have to do a quite a bit of legwork to determine if there is enough there there. Uh, so in the, in, in the case of this, at what point did you realize through all your legwork that, that yes, in fact, there was enough there there? I think when we started um, in the back and forth, she had said something about really finding I, I'm not good at the exact words. Was it the tension or just the narrative arc? And I knew it needed one, but I kind of thought I could get one through something. And she really honed me in on that. And there was this one, one of um, Brian's brothers. These are all adult children at this point, And they'd, um, their dad uh, had disappeared when they were young. And he was just in fascinating himself in that he devoted his life to searching for creatures that most of us think don't exist, like Bigfoot and sea monsters. And it was something, as a journalist, I was instantly curious because I I just like learning about people and things I don't know about. And I knew nothing about these, you know, except for the quick hit little, you know, things making fun of Bigfoot or, or sea monsters. But I was intrigued that it was a real thing in his quest Uh, for this and very, he takes it very serious and very scientific thinking towards it. Um, And so that really intrigued me. And then it was actually conversations with the editors at Atavis that really ironed out, okay, there is something here. We've got this, uh, we can tie together this aspect of this person and, and this earlier story and how it impacted them. And so I think it, that's one thing I really liked about this. My first time doing something for Atavis is the collaboration process, which we've lost so much with other outlets because everything's rush, rush and such. And so you don't get to talk with editors as much and think through a story because a lot of times on your own, you can't figure it out. 
And say word really helped me focus in on, okay, we need kind of fewer characters, but more there than just all these little interesting tidbits. And we, we honed in on one of the uh, adult children, Bruce, who had this fascination with unknown creatures um, in Bigfoot and sea monsters and how he'd actually kind of been doing this search um, for that all these years and connecting it to what it was like. And then all these other mysteries kept popping up too, that we were able to, the way we wove those into the story, when we chose to reveal those kind of helped drive the narrative. When you're reporting on a piece of this nature and uh, that that are that are longer and nuanced and with with a lot of character involved, what is the 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 calculus that you're undergoing when uh, when you're looking at what it's about with a lowercase a and then like about with a capital A? Yeah, um, <laughs> I'd get so what it was about with that lowercase. I wanted it to be about everything. I got really into fascinated about um, Morro Bay, the the area where the sh- uh, he disappeared, mm-hmm. and about the connection between Bakersfield and Morro Bay. And I really got into the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, and Sayward was like, "Yeah, this is interesting, but <laughs> we're kind of going on a ta- tangent." And so I think it really helps having that editor, having someone else, especially on these long things, because you get so into them for so much time. Uh, having that outside person read it and be like, "No, no, hone back in. This is what it's really about." Um, and I think that that was key for me um, because it does. You get these other interesting aspects. So working with other people um, and, and editors and a team who, who can help um, keep you kind of on track. Yeah. I think a lesson learned from, from that and trying to find what the, the central, the central thing of is that big a about capital a about is, is also thinking like there's never a wasted word, you know, even if it's going to get cut in the end, like sometimes those thousand words to get to 200, those 800 that get cut, they weren't for naught. Like they served a purpose, even if they don't make their way into the final typeset. Yeah, that's so true because that whole section, a lot of it got cut down, but some of the quotes that were at that end of that section stayed in and it took me all of that to get to those. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of needed to work through that and then, you get through it. It is interesting because you think with long stories like this, not that they're wasted words, but there might be some that in a short story you couldn't, but there really aren't. They, you really need to, everything has to really keep it moving. Um, and I think that was something <clears throat> I, in my first draft, I didn't do as well as I, I kind of got into the language and the beauty of it and forgot <laughs> to keep it moving as much as it needed to keep going forward because you really got to keep people's attention in a longer piece like that. Yeah. It, especially with it's like keeping, keeping the page turning or in this case, keep people scrolling and people are largely reading these things on a device that is connected to other attention sucking things. So it's all the more, it's like such a greater imperative to figure a way to keep the pacing right. Speaking of pacing, you know, what, how, how did you, ensure that you know that that it was that it did it did just have this sort of a a, a river's pull to it i and i think i don't know if i want to say lucky but one of the the good things was was um over time the adult children kept learning these twists about their father and his history that i didn't even know until i kept it it's how i learned about him a bit too in the reporting process there'd just be this another thing thrown out and like really what um <laughs> and so remembering to uh let the reader learn those in the same way um and let them know there are more of those twists still coming so hint at it but not give it all away at once and then kind of hopefully have them also be interested enough i think in the people um, themselves that they want to keep understanding 
Uh, and I think again, their say word was good on because at one point I, I revealed things earlier on uh, and she was like, no, let's not put them all in one place. You know, let's, let's kind of move them throughout to keep that tension going. So I think it's that figuring out when to reveal things, um, and how much to give away and how to hint at other things. Um, there's a lot of structure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, talk talk a little mo- a bit more about the the structure of it and how you arrived at it or and and retinkered with it. It's so vital to anything uh, to any piece, but especially the longer and longer they get to have some yeah concrete structure in mind. Yeah, um, I actually started. I thought the most dramatic was the boat. Um, scene, but obviously I wasn't there. So I had to use documents to recreate and stuff. But then I think it was say word. I worked with Jonah later, so I can't remember who it was. So I did a lot of the initial stuff with say word. And then later stuff with Jonah was like, well, this is great and it's gripping, but it's not really the stories about the people now more than that part. So they encouraged me to kind of start with Bruce instead of with that. And once they told me that it made sense, um, because the living people are always going to, you know, capture your, your attention a bit more. Um, and so then I decided, uh, to start with Bruce when he's actually out there looking for relic hominoid or, or Bigfoot Sasquatch and kind of be there with him and then get into, well, why is he doing this search? Where's it come from? And then what are the other mysteries in his life? And could there be this connection? So then kind of take it back um, to the the story of his father um, and do that. But then kind of keeping Bruce throughout in his journey, but um, as one of the central ones, but then also putting in some of the other children, uh, adult children again, and, and their journeys um, during this and then kind of ending back with Bruce in his search. Are you, do you have a master document spreadsheet or even index cards or something where you're like tracking the, the progress of each, each individual person so that you know which state, how much stage time everyone has at a given moment? I always love when I see writers who do that and I really admire it, but I've never been good about that. I have like, uh, a folder where I put my atavist folder where I put, and I have a document for each person. And then I'll sometimes have separate documents for scenes. So I just make a new document for everything. And mm-hmm. so there are just all these documents and it doesn't really, it, the way you describe makes a lot more sense. And I wish I worked that way, but I don't, I don't know <laughs> if I could train myself at this point. So I just have these different, um, but keeping each person in their own document helped me a lot. And so I'd kind of do that. And then I'd keep, and then I also had paper documents. So really, um, I have a very unorganized way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. It, it can get so unruly and out of hand. Uh, I, I am someone who's chronically disorganized and it's, and it's, it's very hard to keep things from spiraling out of control. And to, to the point where you'll, you'll start, you you know be going along and then you might i don't know reread a transcript or reread something and, and it's like reading it for the first time you're like oh my god how did i miss that the fir- first time around <laughs> it's like i have to build in so many redundancies so i don't leave good things on the floor just because i forgot they were there cuz i'm so disorganized <laughs> yeah there's so much in stories like this when you're working on for quite a long time and you do so many interviews and some of which you won't end up using, um, but yeah, you'll forget, oh, wait, there was this really good nugget. And to get through it, though, on the document, because there's so so much text there at that point, I will, I'll do a lot of bolding when it's something I really want to make sure I mm. get. But yeah, then when I have dozens of documents, it's... Yeah. it's uh, I have this gigantic spreadsheet for a project that, I, uh, for a book that I'm working on right now. And it's, I, what's helped me in organizing all of these articles chronologically is, uh, is color coding various things. Like uh, my central, if my central figure is quoted in a particular article, I, I just have that colored green. And then if someone is talking about him, I have that colored yellow. 
And if it's a really juicy story uh, or, or an article, I'll, I'll bold it. And, um, and then, you know, certain other things, like if there's a YouTube video of, of an event, like I have that colored red. If there are letters written that I've filed, I color that in a light blue. So that, that way, at least at a glance, you, I can kind of see things. And uh, that, that's helped me in uh, having a little checkbox if I've used the piece already, if, like if I've cited it, citing as I write, you know, just all these redundancies that are built into place just to make cover my, cover my tracks because it can get so out of hand. That's a great idea. Yeah, actually, when you say the citing, that's that's one of my biggest struggles because I'll I'll kind of have in my notes where I got things from, but then once those things get moved around later, then I totally lose track of <laughs> where that was on the recording, where that was in the the thing because maybe it actually got cut out and then it comes reappears, and that's actually my hardest part is when it gets to like the citing and the fact checking, remembering. Okay, I know. I have verification for that, but where was it again? Which tape was it on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, fortunately uh, I've, I've been, it's very clunky to write this way, but it, it, it'll be better in the long run. It'll be like, you know, the whole site is your right. And I have a, over to the far right hand side of this big spreadsheet is, is a Dropbox link. And then, you know, I copy that link. And when I footnote the citation, I hyperlink the citation and that way a fact checker can go in, click that. It'll go to the shared folder and they can find anything. And it's, um, I hope it's so anytime I'm getting, pulling anything in, I'm just like footnoting that thing. And I mean, I work in a Google doc, so it's, even if you cut and paste things, those citations move with it, which is pretty nice in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm just terrified of, you're always terrified of those moments where you, you're writing along and you have this great detail and you know you have it somewhere, but you can't find it, so you can't use it. That that's, Exactly. That's the worst. Yeah, it is. <laughs> did, did this story, I, I, the, the cryptozoology part, I think really, I think that really makes this story hum. Okay, it's this parallel track that is so thematically congruent to the rest of the mystery. When that came into it did that crack the code uh, of the story for you yes I, I think you're right that um and i don't know if i saw it as much as i as uh say word at that point because i was telling her well the aunt's really fascinating too she's the one who thought she saw uh, alan the disappeared dad at one time and she also has this daughter who um she uh believes was kidnapped and things. And I was like, there's this whole lot there. Um, but, uh, the cryptozoology, when we saw that, cause it was just, even if, and, and Bruce doesn't really see the parallel or doesn't think, but it's like there are these two big mysteries that you're never going to find an answer to. And so it just seemed like, yeah, there's really parallels there. And it's just a fascinating thing too, that I don't think is explored at least in the uh, publications I read as much, cryptozoology isn't something I hear about much, right? Um, maybe just like, you know, the more humorous short thing about a search for Bigfoot or something, but not as a serious kind of quest. I I didn't know that much about that. And so, and I think a lot of readers probably who aren't interested in it don't know a whole lot about uh, that. So it was kind of like this um, subculture that was fascinating. Yeah, and then talk about something that can pull you down a rabbit hole to be like, this is so cool, this is so interesting. And then eventually you're like, well, it's got to still stay on point with <laughs> with the greater story. I imagine that, that there was a temptation to want to keep going down that road. Oh, yes. I was actually really, um, he's actually really also into the sea monsters and Loch Ness monster, sea serpents and lake serpents. And there was a study and was really like, oh my gosh, that would be so cool if he goes and searches for the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland and I could go with him. And I was just really getting into all these things and like, oh, when's the next search? When are these things? But, you know, it's also his work very um, fact-based and very tested and trialed and very, it's not this spontaneous type thing, right? And so there's a lot of planning and thought that goes into everything in very method 
method. And, and so it wasn't kind of how I imagined like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll go for a sighting there and do that. But it's like anything where there's just a lot of dull downtime with nothing and um, that. And then it was also when I started, it was right post COVID. So he wasn't going to be going to Scotland or anything like that. Mm. With a story of this nature where you're dealing with, you know, a, a family and, you know, uh, the subject matter can be very delicate. Uh, how did you navigate just getting and earning trust with everyone here? Yeah, I think Brian was my key to that, was approaching Brian first because he was a journalist, uh, television uh, reporter, and then also teaches journalism and still works as a television reporter. And so I approached him as fellow journalist who. I also teach journalism at a university. And so we had this, you know, kind of connection right away and just saying, this is a great story. And he agreed. He also thought it was a great story. That's why he had done that. And he he understood we were speaking the same language as journalists. And, and that was a big help. And I other family members, I met them all through Brian. He helped connect me. And I thought, you know, that's the way to do this. If Brian understands what I'm trying to do, have him reach out to those siblings and say, would you be willing to talk? And then after I talked to a few more, some of them really like Dee Dee, the one sister of the siblings, really wanted to talk and, and was really open. And so that was easier. And then some of the others were a little more uh, maybe not as interested in talking, but I think they did it for the sibling then at that point, right? I remember Bruce said at one point, you know, well, my sister really wanted me to talk to you, so <laughs> I'm going to do it. And and so I think just trying to show them that I was genuine, that I was just interested in the story and, and their family. And I, I didn't really have an agenda other than telling a story and letting them do the talking and, and then trying to not, um, I think just a, a lot of times in a lot of these, it's listening, right? It's, mm. you know, you can ask questions and stuff, but really just listening and, and letting them start with their story, what they think is important before I get into all my questions, um, and, and just learning from them. Uh, and they were also a, a really nice family that, I think also raised very polite too, that they weren't going to be rude to me about, you know, they, they felt um, if I was polite to them and such, they're not going to just be like rude or anything. And so that also worked in my favor that they were just um, the way they were raised, what was to be friendly about this and open. And um, of course, whenever you can meet them in person, it's so much easier, but some was done on phone uh, and some was done in person. Um, it was harder, the trust for, uh, the one, and there was one survivor left from the boat accident and he was harder to get. And even when I got him, he still was rather reluctant, but just kept showing up in person help because it was harder for him to get rid of me that way. <laughs> and um, again, letting him talk and just trying to ask for things, but not be too pushy and be very respectful. This is really difficult for him. Um, and he has other things he'd much rather be doing than talking to me. Yeah, there's something to be said, and it's very hard to do, especially in a, in a where technology makes it such where it's easier to text or email, even calling and cold calling now is all the more difficult. It spikes my cortisol to even pick up the phone and cold call people. Uh, but there's something to be said for door knocking and showing up in person. Uh, is that uh, is, is that something that you would, uh, I don't know, it's it's a good nuclear option <laughs> to, to earn, earn and garner trust in a sense. Yeah. And I actually, I did, I, I had spoken to him briefly on the phone before. So he did know I was coming, but I made a point. I did not want to do it. I knew if I tried to do an actual interview on the phone, I'd get like two minutes or something. So when I was on the phone, I said, is there a time I can come and meet with you? And then he, he reluctantly said, yeah. And then 
he knew I'd driven quite a ways to get to him. So I think that also he was like, okay, she came this far. I'm going to at least give her some time. So letting him know, you know, this is important enough to you that you're going to put some effort and go out of your way a little. And I think people respect that. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think what I have done the just knock on the door before and it's, it's risky, but sometimes that is the only way. And, but when you can give a little warning, but say, look, I want to put the time into this to actually meet you in person. I think, especially these days when so often we don't do anything or much in person, I think it, there's automatically, they're going to give you a little more time that way. Yeah. It it can be far more disarming in in person. And nowadays with just our various online avatars, even if we have our actual face as our like Instagram profiles, it's still to be face to face, person to person, hand hand to hand. It's like, okay, this is an actual person, not just some internet avatar, uh, facsimile of a person who I don't even know, maybe in an an age of AI, are you even real? And so, (laughs) so that it's almost like we have to, we have to let the pendulum swing back and do everything as more analog as possible. And that might be uh, a case of slow is fast. I, I agree. And especially you're having a conversation that's about something really difficult to talk about it and something that happened a long time ago. I mean, when I went there, and of course it was a Zoom interview I could have seen on the screen or something, but he went and then got, he's like, well, maybe you'd want to see this. And he got the folder with all the documents from the articles written about the boat accident, those things. And it was something that seeing that and feeling that really different, you know, um, than hearing that over the phone. Oh, I have all these old articles, but seeing that and seeing in the corner, it was like 20 cents for the newspaper or mm-hmm. something. And, and there were some articles that I, I'd researched old articles that I had not been able to find. I don't know if they were never archived or what. So, having that there and seeing the way the order he put them in Mm. versus he had these other mementos of his stepfather. His stepfather had been the boat um, owner and stepfather died in the accident um, and the body was found. And so some of the memorabilia about his stepfather um, and the awards his stepfather received and his recognition for his uh, service in the Navy and or Coast Guard and such mixed amongst these newspaper clip scenes. It was just interesting to see that, that you wouldn't grasp from someone just telling you about that. Yeah. And it doing st- stuff of that nature in person, it, it, it allows luck to sometimes work in your favor uh, where it otherwise maybe it wouldn't. And I, I feel like so much of research and reporting is really serendipity. And, uh, and sometimes this in-person stuff, it, it, it it at least gives luck a chance to work in your favor. Exactly. Timing, luck, yeah. um, and getting people, even some of the phone conversations I had, it was good the first time. And then they didn't want to follow up later. And so I just lucked out. I caught them at a good time the first time when they were already interested in exploring this and going into that. And yeah. There's so much out of your control. Yeah. And it's maddening. It's uh, as I've, I've had conversation with some friends just in terms of research and you don't want to leave any stone unturned. But the what drives me, what keeps me up at night, quite literally, is not knowing certain stones are there to overturn in the first place. It's just like sometimes a conversation I have with someone leads to a newspaper I didn't even think about. Like I didn't even know it existed because it's not on newspapers.com. I didn't know this person was in this area at that particular time, so I didn't know to even look at that newspaper. And suddenly I've been turned on to that paper other, that I other, otherwise wouldn't have. And those are the things, just not knowing the stones are there. Like, if I know the stones are there, I'll overturn them. But, oh, my God, I didn't know that stone existed. That keeps me up at night. Yeah, well, and with this story, there were some of those that the, the sister, they didn't know they had that they found out about later. I didn't know anything about that till partway through the story. And I wouldn't have even thought to ask because mm-hmm. it's not something you usually ask. Oh, do you have any siblings that you, your dad had that you didn't know about until? <laughs> and so it was yeah. like, how do you know to ask for that? You don't. Um, and, and luckily that it did come up later. They brought it, but I, 
I remember right, it was kind of just an aside at one point. And then I'm like, wait, wait, stop. We need to get further <laughs> into this. And uh, part of the story, too, which uh, you, you get to towards the end is I think part of all the siblings, part, part of their motivation in, in agreeing to do this was they were hoping that you would, in fact, solve this mystery. And you had to kind of walk them back a little bit that this is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my due diligence, do my reporting, do everything to tell a good story and, and to find, to unlock those answers. But I think in the back of their mind, they're probably hoping that like, oh, maybe you will find the answer. Yeah. And I think there's a part of me early on, I thought, well, so much these days you read so many stories, especially with anything involved DNA or something like that, where the journalist has actually been able to help find um, some answers to things. But without the body, I was pretty sure it was going to be, I wasn't going to find anything. And so from the beginning, I kind of told him, look, you know, my goal, I'm going to look into the story and I find some interesting things, but I I doubt I can solve what wasn't. Um, But I think even myself, there's this little hope. You always have a little hope that, oh, maybe I'll stumble across the right thing and there will be something there. And so, yeah, that that was there all along and something I did revisit with some more than others. Some were really like, he's dead. There's no way. And you're not going to find proof or unproof or whatever. And then, but, um, Didi probably the most out of all of them really was like, and she admitted it. I asked her at one point, she's like, yeah, I, I hope you're just going to like sum it up and, and tell us this is how it was and kind of get that resolution. And, and some other people I interviewed said, yeah, I hope this gives them the resolution and closure that's there. Um, which I think is revealing in itself though, that, that people think that's possible and how you kind of live your life when it isn't really, you know? Um, I I think especially in this day and age when so much is, we can go back, what was I was reading the other day, someone who died thousands of years ago, scientists are going back and trying to figure out what they died of and think, you know, because there's so much that science can do that we think everything can be known, but there still are a lot of things we'll never know. Um, and I think that in this day when so much is known is even harder to take in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, Patrick Rad and Keith basically solved the murder mystery and say nothing like by accident. It just kind of happened. And, uh, it's like, you, you wish that for the people at the heart of it, but it's like, you know, you still have to report the facts, report the truth and as a story, it just unto itself, it works better with the unknown, just from a story perspective. But at the then you have to kind of like just as a reporter myself, I'm sure you experience this too. You, you know, you walk it back and you're like, oh man, there's still like real people at the heart of this where they would really love to have that closure, and they're not going to get it. But like story mechanics wise, it like it works better this way and. And it has a good, satisfying read to it. There's always that dialogue you're always having with yourself, like, oh, the story is great this way. But it's like, oh, but there are still real people that hurt at the center of it. Yeah, that that's the what you're always balancing throughout is this is not we're we're crafting and, and not making things up or anything, but a lot of the techniques of fiction, right, to it's yeah. narrative nonfiction, it's crafted. But yet these are real people in real lives and it's their story as well. Um, and it has a real impact on them. So yeah, it's balancing those different, um, not needs, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's definitely important to always keep both of those in mind. Yeah. That's always the calculus. Like it, 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 this inherently feels exploitative, especially the more, the more artistic you turn the dial on a nonfiction story of a sensitive story, you're like, okay, well, who is this? Who is this for? Is this for my gratification of my own artistic ego, or and you're using these people to for your own status and your own prestige uh, and your own byline, or is it actually in service of something in honoring the people at the center of it? There's al- always it's so hard to juggle. Rip. Yeah, I'm reminded of that. Journalism dictate um, never a source should never be a means to an end. And I think yeah. sometimes 
every once in a while, just reminding yourself of that. Cause we do get, we get stuck in the story so much that mm-hmm. uh, we forget. Okay. But then also as a journalist, you're not writing for your sources. So you do have to balance. You're like, well, um, it was that uh, out of a story, it's an older one, but I read recently about the doctor in uh, Sudan. Popping in here for just a moment. Katya is referring to Atavist issue number 53, aptly titled The Doctor. And let's see. Here's the uh, deck, if you will. Tom Katana, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is the only surgeon for thousands of square miles in southern Sudan. His hospital and his life are constantly under threat. There is no end to the carnage he must treat and no sign of it letting up. Why does he refuse to leave and it it was you know he's viewed as a hero and he does all these great things but he also does some things that maybe are a little questionable or something so I really respected the journalist for giving us all of that and mm. I think it made the care the the doctor more of a real person as well because yes he does all these heroic things but he also he's not perfect you know um and I I think that well maybe the doctor might take offense to one little thing. Hopefully they see the overall thing of they're just showing you as a human, right? And, and a real person. Um, but it is hard to do when you put that line in and you're like, oh, I know they're not going to really be happy with this line, but it's true and it's important. Um, and it does serve a purpose. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Katya, as I bring these conversations down for a landing, I always love asking the guest, you in this case, for a recommendation of some kind. And it's just like anything you're excited about uh, that you want to share with the listeners. And so I just extend that to you. What, what you recommend? Yeah, it was funny. I was actually thinking way too much about this. <laughs> and my best answer was Chutney and Cookie, who are not cookies and Chutney. They're two little kittens, my friend's kittens. And those little things have brought me the most joy recently <laughs> and I'm a dog person and I've rethought the whole cat thing because of chutney and cookie. And so I'm recommending kittens. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, no shortage of, of kittens at, at the shelters. So they all need, they need good homes and, and, and love and care. So yeah, that's a, that's a great one. <laughs> exactly. These are actually our two rescue kittens as well. And the woman who rescued them did a really good job of just making them really affectionate. I never knew cats could be just so affectionate and have such personality. So yeah, we'll go with uh, tortoiseshell rescue kittens. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, the, I, the, this was such a, a great conversation about, about your story and, and it allowed us to pull on a lot of different threads uh, of be it structure or ethics and, and, and about con- composing these kind of things. So this is wonderful, Katya. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, 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 we, we made it to the end of yet another hardback episode of the podcast. All right. I, I, I suppose at some point or another, I'm going to have to riff about the Prefontaine book. Hey, before I get to that, thanks to Jonah, thanks to Katya for, you know, coming on the show, making this possible. Okay, but, yeah, all right, Prefontaine book, whatever. I'm all over the place. Okay, here we go. Honestly, I just want to let it cook. There's a part of me that's just like, you know what? Yeah, no one wants to hear about the the labor. It's just like, just show me the book. I don't care how you're getting there. Just get there. It's in the slow cooker, man. But I'm going to have to flash fry this thing soon to develop a hearty crust. I crossed the 60,000 word mark on the writing this week. Still have so much research and reporting to do. Um, running into a wall with some people who don't want to talk to me, which surprises me at this point, but whatever. They're prerogative. I'm definitely, I've definitely done more than 100 interviews with... Mm, 80-plus people. Uh, Jeff Perlman does that much in a month, but we know where the comparison game gets us, so we're not going to go there. Today marks December 1st, four and a half months to deadline. I still haven't read a single word I've written. I still haven't broken it up into chapters. You're probably wondering, what the fuck are you doing, B.O.? And you wouldn't be asking a bad question. 
I talk on the phone with uh, Bronwyn Dickey on the 15th of every month because that's the the mark of when I, I'm a full month closer to death. April 15th, 2024 being the final deadline. This might sound weird, but we've never met in person, but I consider her one of my closest friends. And I hope you have someone like her in your life that you can turn to like that. And maybe that's what I feel like riffing on this week. Not the usual bitching and moaning I'm guilty of, or uh, whether it be wannabes on social media or the toxic desperation of people seeking attention before it's due. But in our own small ways, how can we leverage whatever influence we have, large or small, to open doors for others and hold that door open? Not let it hit their ass on the way out or in. You know, Jane Friedman, she shares her platform with other writers. Roxanne Gay shares her substack with emerging writers. I like to think that this little podcast does something similar. I want to keep celebrating people on the show who don't look like me, who don't sound like me. Like, I'm not perfect, I know. But it's my goal, mission, if you will, to get more people onto the stage. Many who might not get opportunities. Yeah, I made a joke on threads that, uh, as 2023 comes to a close, I worry that there aren't enough podcasts with dudes talking to dudes. So much of the podcast fear is white men talking to white men, and these are hosts with audiences that make mine look like a drop in the ocean, quite literally. Well, not literally. Doesn't it bug you when people say literally, and it obviously uh, they mean figuratively or uh, metaphorically? I, I checked in with a podcast I used to listen to back in the day, but grew fatigued by his constant interrupting of the guests, his name dropping, his reliance on his network of dudes, always dudes. I did a gender audit on his show five years ago, and it was something like eight to one of like dudes to women. I checked back in recently, went down the list of his recents, and sure enough, dude, 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 dude. I mean, how lazy, and if you really want to get into it, how irresponsible. Like I said, I'm far from perfect, but but I'm trying, and I'll continue to improve. With at most 52 new episodes a year, I simply can't do more seeing efforts. I just can't. I can't. Not unless I actually made a living from the show. Um, but so, so there's finite real estate. I can't do two shows a week. When, that would be nice, give more people opportunity, but damn, I can't read that much. And if you even have like a modicum of leverage, like consider using it to open doors and lend a hand instead of, you know, threading or tweeting about, I don't know, a blog post you wrote about your mental health journey. Listen, I'm not denigrating mental health. We all need to address it in whatever way we see fit. Less destructive ways, the better. I could take my own advice there. I, I go to beer versus doctors. But if I see another one of those stupid fucking videos of people like, on Instagram, they're like set up their camera and they kind of like backtrack and then they mm, look all coyly at the camera and then they like point to the corner and like text pops up. I'm going to throw my phone at Lachlan. And listen, he's got enough problems. God damn it, this got way too long. But here we are. Stay wild, see you never. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. <laughs>